all ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. Our current system kind of misses the boat in that it's all about symptom management or symptom mapping. This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and Lime Journey Guide, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 223 with the founder of WellBe, Adrian Nolan Smith. Also welcome our show producer in the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you'll learn three main things. Why getting your diet right is your ultimate preventative medicine, how alternative medicine can give you new insights, and why you must have an advocate on your Lyme journey. Thanks, Aurora, and a big shout out to all you longtime Lyme ninjas. You're the reason we have half a million downloads. Aurora and I really appreciate you tuning in, and we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. You are now officially a Lime Ninja. Yes, welcome. And as you know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join you from all over the world. And this past week we've had listeners tune in from Ethiopia to France and from India to Ireland. Thanks, Aurora. Tell us a little bit more about this week's guest, Adrian Nolan Smith. Adrian Nolan Smith suffered from Lyme disease from ages 11 to 13. She was able to enter successful remission from a combination of antibiotics and integrative therapies. This led to a lifelong interest in alternative and integrative medicine and discovering the root cause of medical problems. After the death of her mother, Adrian dedicated herself to transforming the healthcare system and founded WellBe. She holds a BA from Johns Hopkins, an MBA from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, and is a board-certified patient advocate. Okay, McKay, tell us, why did you want to talk with Adrian? The reason I brought Adrian onto the show is that she's a perfect introduction to our new Lyme Journey Roadmap. After doing more than 200 interviews, we've come to the realization that there's no overarching roadmap to get Lyme free. There are tons of protocols out there, but there's no map where you can really plan what you need to be doing. 
and instead people are left confused and fending for themselves. So we're really going to put together a step-by-step journey that can take you to and through getting Lyme free. We're not going to tell you how to do it. There are already tons and tons of experts out there on the how. There needs to be more focus on when and what. And that's what we're going to be doing. Where this interview falls into the overall roadmap is the middle section where you're dealing with your infections, whatever they may be, mold, viruses, co-infections, Lyme itself. It doesn't matter. Something that's not supposed to be in charge inside your body that you got to get rid of. And the importance of this story is Adrian's mother's Persistence. Persistence. And even though the antibiotics didn't work as well as everybody hoped they would, she had an answer. And even though the herbs didn't work as well as she had hoped, she talks about how terrible the Chinese herbs did, <laughs> they, they kept on going. They tried hyperbarics and they finally did some other things that really made a difference in terms of their health. So that's really important. You can't put all your eggs in one protocol basket. You always have to have a plan B. I think that's the important message here. So that's why I brought her on. It's a wonderful story. I hope you learn a lot from it. Hello, Adrian. This is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Hi. Thank you so much for having me today. I am very excited to talk to you. And I have a, a confession to make. My twins... And my youngest daughter, actually, they're all born in Baltimore, in Hopkins. My mom's from Baltimore. And I, I oh, read okay. on your bio that you went to undergrad there. I did, yep. And I, Baltimore is, you know, has a special place in my heart because my, I just think it's a, a unique place. And once you've lived there, you, you sort of either love it or hate it. But um, <laughs> my mom was also from uh, Annapolis area. So I have a lot oh. of family. So. It's still special to me. Yeah. My whole family went to Hopkins as well. My mother, father, myself, and my two brothers. So, yeah. You're like super legacy. <laughs> well, only one generation, but I guess so. Yeah. We're, <laughs> we're, uh, we're big Hopkins fans and, um, you know, involved in the school cells and all of that. So, it's uh, great to hear that your kids hopefully were. Delivered they, successfully there. <laughs> they were well. They were well treated, and uh, one. Of, so my wife at the time was working for the School of Public Health, and okay. had one of her friends who was a researcher there encouraged her get out of the hospital as soon as you can. <laughs> <laughs> After giving birth, she said yeah. it's not a place for people to be. Yeah, that's very. Interesting, Interesting, huh? I'm sure, we can talk about that later. Yeah, on so actually, let's episode. let's yeah, no, let's let's just use that as so the, the woman who told her this was involved in putting together the flu vaccines. So she was very much in the public health sphere of things, right? Uh, on the big pictures, like trying to keep people healthy through conventional means. Now, here's a little other interesting bit of trivia for all you anti-vaxxers out there. She didn't take her own vaccine. She never got a, the flu vaccine. So it's just, That's it's so interesting. Isn't that yeah. w- weird? Weird and, you know, something you would never hear kind of from the conventional channels of information. Well, right. But, no, definitely not. Yeah. 
And you've had some interesting experiences in the healthcare system that have kind of given you some behind the scenes insight. So what's your take on how how come you know, like we're so good at like emergency medicine, you know, somebody comes in with a, let's use Baltimore since they've been in the news badly, a gunshot wound and we can save their life, which is miraculous. Right. But then something chronic and even horrible and life-threatening as Lyme disease can be, but you know, most of it's day to day, to day just misery. It, we're terrible at taking care of that. How come? That's, I could probably talk a whole hour on this topic, but like you said, um, you know, I've seen from, personal health experiences, as well as when I was working in the healthcare system, that, that of course, when you have basically our entire healthcare system and style of medicine, which is not very old, if you think about it, it's about 100 years old in its current form, um, really evolved to treat those emergencies, right, where you're dying of cholera or influenza, or your leg is blown off in war, or those types of things. So it has developed to treat these catastrophes and it's developed really well. I mean, we really have the most incredible system in the world for life-saving medicine. And so you better believe that's exactly what I want in, in a true emergency. But like you said, most of our healthcare costs and most of our premature death in America is from, and several other countries as well, is from these chronic health issues. So that's everything from, you know, heart disease and diabetes to um, stroke and asthma and, you know, COPD and, um, you know, a what, whole range of things. And then these sort of more invisible illnesses like Lyme or autoimmune conditions that really cripple people. But uh, as far as they can tell, you know, they don't have a deformity per se, right? So um, with those illnesses, our current system kind of misses the boat in that it's all about symptom management or symptom mapping. So you could say it's kind of um, a disease care system rather than an actual healthcare system. And so what I mean by that is for a chronic health issue, you really want to get to the root cause of it, right? You want, want to understand why am I having these symptoms? There's something going on or why is my body not functioning properly? You're not getting a period. You're not making enough thyroid hormone or insulin or whatever it might be, or you're having high blood pressure, like what is actually going on here that might be causing this? Because the body is extremely brilliant and resilient. So it does take something to to have that happen. And sure, there's a genetic component. And at this point, we know it's really only about five, maybe 10% of everything, of all the possible things that could influence your health that's really genetics, right? So these other 90, 95% are environmental toxins, the food you eat, your lifestyle choices, and, you know, whether or not you abuse um, vices, you know, drugs, alcohol, those sorts of things. So we have, it's really exciting because there's so much that we can do, but with regard to the healthcare system, most of us have some situation where we might go to a doctor with a chronic health issue. And like in my case, when I was 20 years old, I was given... I, I lost my period for uh, about a year by the time I actually started to see a bunch of doctors about it. And um, I started to go to a bunch of Hopkins doctors and, you know, some sort of fancy endocrinologists and gynecologists in New York as well, and, you know, skipped a line and felt very important and blah, blah, blah. But as it turns out, all of them had the same answer for me, which was, 
you know, we can't really see anything particularly wrong with you on your blood work. And how about you just take the birth control pill because, you know, maybe it could like, you know, it, it at least start coming even if it's, you know, fakely created. And when I say fakely created, it means that you get, it's a synthetic hormone. So it's making you have a period, but it's not your body, you know, being able to produce it on its own, which is what you want. So I, because of my Lyme experience, which I'm happy to talk about in a few minutes, um, which was when I was from about 11 to 13, um, I was empowered enough to know that that's really not going to get to the root cause of it. And so I, you know, politely declined and was considered a non-compliant patient and ended up, my father, thank God, was talking to somebody about this and found me a naturopath who I started seeing um, in the summer between my junior and senior year of college. And she looked at my blood work so differently. And she just started to really unravel this onion of different health things that had happened to me that would, that were contributing to me not getting a period. A lot of it was, you know, diet. I, because of my Lyme experience had eaten very cleanly at home with my family till I went to college and then was eating in a dining hall, you know, two to three meals a day, which you can imagine is, you know, Aramark, Sodexo, whatever it is, it's extremely unhealthy food. Um, even when I was, you know, not being that unhealthy or whatever, and, and probably I'd also studied in China studied abroad in China and um, definitely had some different, you know, parasites or bacteria or whatever from those experiences that then I think were compromising my my gut and therefore for my immune system. And then I'm sure, you know, like the legacy of Lyme being in your system, even if you've gotten it to be inactive, it definitely just puts a little bit of a damper on your immune system when it might want to deal with something else, uh, like, you know, crappy food or a different parasite or whatever it might be. So, I ended up, I ended up following her. Um, yeah, exactly. Protocol for this very strict diet and you know herbs and supplements and whatever for six months, and she had said if you do this you know religiously for six months, like your your period will come back. And sure enough, it was like six months and a day later it did, and it's been, been totally you know normal for the last over a decade. And one the experience that I had in that situation just showed me that had I masked the symptom, i.e., just taken the birth control pill and created a fake period for myself, I would have never gotten to the root cause of the issue, which was that there were definitely things lingering in my gut. Uh, my diet was not giving my body what it needed to have its simple functions, which for a woman includes getting a monthly period. <laughs> and, and that kind of medicine is the only way I really think that we'll be able to reverse the chronic disease epidemic in America and turn around our, you know, out of control costs, et cetera. So that's sort of a long-winded way of saying, that's what I see wrong with the conventional health healthcare system now. Now, in terms of you know them going after the symptom rather than the cause, I mean, they're not trying to go after the symptom, but they just that's kind of where they stop frequently. Again, especially with the chronic things. If you you know if you're having a heart attack and they see a block in your you know vein and they put a stent in, okay, they 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 fixed the cause of the block well it's not even the cause of the blockage they fixed the blockage but they didn't fix the cause of what created the block right and is that is that cause they're not they're looking like your naturopath looked at the blood tests differently and maybe even some different blood tests is is it because they're looking at the wrong thing is because the kind of the sieve they have to catch information is so big and they're really looking for just you know you're going to die from this in the next 6 months we got to stop it and anything less than that is well come see us when you're sick I really 
believe it has more to do with the medical education system and the medical payment ah, system. Okay. So really, the education system doesn't really equip doctors to go that much further. They're really schooled in more so emergency medicine and making sure that you save a life, right? Or um, get people out of like severe pain or something like that. So um, if somebody more so has a disease that's about to kill them, how do you make sure they don't die, right? Like in the case of a heart attack or influenza or Lyme disease per se, although that doesn't usually kill you instantly. But that's really how I see of the problem starts. The problem starts with how they're actually taught to approach the problem. And then secondly, it's because the payment system is such that first, it's a you have to have disease codes, right, to, to get anything reimbursed. So if that's your system that you've created, anything that's at all preventative or goes further other than just the thing that you've just, you know, dealt with, let's say it was a heart attack, it doesn't really encourage that. It's not going to give you extra reimbursement for that. Um, it's not your reimbursement is not reliant on that. So additionally, because it's fee for service, meaning that you're going to get, let's say, as a doctor, $200 for every single patient that comes in that you perform a stent on or probably a lot more than that, say 2000 If you perform 10 of those procedures a day, you get $200,000 or $20,000 or whatever it might be. If you perform three of those and you spend a lot more time with those patients and try to understand exactly why they you have go out of business. Effect, you're yeah. going to get $6,000 and you're also going to have the hospital administrator saying to you, get in line. This is unacceptable. We have you know, right. metrics to meet. And if it's a publicly traded company, we have, you know, shareholders, fiduciary duty, things like that. So I think those are some of more of the issues why getting to the root cause, if you've just like, you know, done the, the sort of bare minimum is not really encouraged yeah, in the system that we are in now. So here's an impossible question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because you're really up on this stuff. Is it fixable or do we have to create a parallel system like you kind of did with your alternative healing? You know what? I think it's a little bit of both. It's taking a lot of what people understand and trust about the current conventional system and, the, and applying that to a lot of things in integrative and you know alternative or natural medicine, because people love the idea of evidence-based. I mean, I love it. Research, science, things that can be proven and isolated. Like that seems so enticing. The fact of the matter is which with a lot of natural therapies, there's no way to patent that, right? So there's no one willing to do clinical trials on something they can't patent because where's the money in that? You just wouldn't do that. So some of these academic medical centers are now doing some of this, but it's very, very small compared to, to drug clinical trials or medical device trials. So what I think you have to do is kind of apply some of the branding, right, from the conventional system to this integrative world and alternative world and show that there's, there is a lot of evidence and research here and also a real lack of harm comparatively, right? Very few natural medicines have side effects as compared to, to drugs and medical devices and surgery. So I think that's one thing that's really important for them to come closer together and to show that one is not hippie, woo-woo, weirdo, like alternative, crunchy, like all the, you know, the stigmas. And one is, you know, perfect and scientific and clean and, you know, white, you know, things like white coat and all that. Um, and then secondarily, I think that slowly but surely as these uh, chronic disease rates and costs just become too astronomical, we're going to have to have 
about a, a bit of pushdown from the policy perspective, as well as consumers demanding differently from their conventional systems and their insurance companies to say, we don't want a disease care system anymore. Like we want to have preventative medicine paid for in the variety of forms that we know it is, which is mostly diet and lifestyle. And furthermore, we don't want, you know, things that we might want to try like acupuncture not covered. Um, You need to give us that opportunity, that right to try things, you know, that's maybe a little bit more natural in approach um, than going straight to, you know, a pharmaceutical. And then you also need to have um, these large healthcare systems and healthcare companies saying, yes, we need to start addressing these root causes and also having the medical education system incorporate this into their curriculum. Because when somebody's been kind of indoctrinated and spent almost a decade, blood, sweat, and tears, to become a medical doctor, it's quite an achievement and it was really grueling. And so to then tell them their entire, a lot of what they learned is not really how we should be approaching medicine, that's kind of like a stab in the heart. I mean, they're going to get very, I would be very defensive about that. And I would try to say, poo-poo that idea and support the one that I'd been taught for nearly a decade and took a lot to get as far as a certification. So you're not really going to be able to get emerging doctors. And we are having a bit more of that right now with functional medicine coming online and people, young doctors being extremely excited by it and, you know, going through the integrative medicine program that Dr. Wheel has and Arizona and little things like this and Cleveland Clinic now having a center for functional medicine. All of these are exciting things, but it's, you know, very small compared to the actual conventional medical system. So you're not going to be able to have young doctors in droves wanting to practice this way if they were never taught about it. And they're kind of discouraged from doing so because they have to take time out of their own schedule and, you know, not get paid to go do an additional fellowship in functional medicine or integrative medicine. You know, that's, they've just already been in school for so long. You know, it's, it's very hard to um, convince somebody to do that if, if you're making it challenging as far as, you know, being paid and et cetera. So those are some of the things that I think will help to um, actually create this as a system of medicine without having to completely get rid of the one that we have. Because again, we need it for those very rare but important moments where life and death are, you know, on the table. Thank you for your insights on that. I have about a million more comments, but like you said, we could end up filling up the whole hour plus then uh, with with talk about the the system. And so let let since you had that segue into the woo-woo crunchy alternative, which is actually my world, I'm trained as an acupuncturist. <laughs> well, that's not how I feel, but you know what I mean. And that's not how I feel. I, I'm saying this as as an acupuncturist. So you don't I didn't yeah, you're you're clean. You're fine. <laughs> I know you're making an example, but that's still, you know. Somebody asked me the other day. I was actually I was I'm doing some uh, some community acupuncture up at a local college, and one of the students was asking me, "Well, you know, how long did it take to get trained? What's you know, what degree do you have? Things like this. Some very very good questions, and was asking about acceptance in the medical community. And what's interesting about acupuncture is there's a fairly small but vocal group of physicians who are trained as acupuncturists and, and decent training. There's kind of the weekend course kind of training, but there's there's a group who are, have deeper training. And they have really kind of put the flag on the beachhead. And it's not that I don't, I think we're any more accepted, but there's less bashing. 
going on than when I was studying 30 years ago. So you don't have as many outspoken uh, physicians just saying, stay away from it. You're going to get harmed. You're going to get, you know, infection from a needle. Thing. All that kind of stuff is, has gone by the wayside. But the acceptance of it, it's more like benign neglect. They're saying, well, you know, if you, if you want to do that, go ahead. But, you know, it's not going to, at least it's not going to hurt you. So I think that's that's kind of where we are. But anyway, so the, that was the we got sidetracked there with the, the the crunchy granola, but the effective crunchy granola. So we, you as a Lyme patient, as a young Lyme patient, and this is remarkable because you sounded like you had some direction in this, like you had some control over your treatment. You had Lyme disease, and you Absolutely had went, did not went, have control. I will explain more. Okay, it was all okay. my mother. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, mom. <laughs> and then, and then, and but she she had some control and, and some idea. And then you went the antibiotic route, and it took you so far or nowhere. And then you switched. So tell me about how that all happened. Yeah, happy to. So uh, when I was eleven, I was diagnosed with Lyme, and the only real reason that. I was diagnosed was because my younger brother had Lyme much worse than I did. He was, you know, crying out in the middle of the night from joint pain, like dropping to his knees, you know, just like in so much pain. And I think there'd been some change in his development as far as, you know, uh, learning capabilities and things like that. And I was really just really exhausted, like very, very tired, uh, unnaturally so for like an 11 year old, you know, otherwise healthy kid. Um, and also had a lot of, uh, short-term memory loss. So, you know, you like, look at a page, you look away, you don't know what it said at all, or, you know, something like phone number, same thing. So, um, more mild. And I think this is because I was, uh, bitten later. So, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, my family had a summer cottage in Lyme, Connecticut, <laughs> So <laughs> you're kidding. No. So wow. Okay. You know, how it didn't occur to my mother earlier that this was the case for my brother and for me as well. She just, you know, she didn't Lyme disease wasn't a thing when she was growing up and she didn't know that much about it. And so, you know, some of like his school and whatever tried to say that he had learning disabilities mm-hmm. and, you know, my mm-hmm. mom was really adamant that no, something else was going on. And so she finally got, a Lyme diagnosis for him and then looked at me and said, well, like maybe she has it too. And then, you know, that was the case. So we both started treatment at the same time and we were both put on, you know, honestly, it was over 20 years ago. So I'm not sure exactly what the antibiotic was at the time. It's probably doxycycline, I imagine, but I think we did a pretty long dose of it too. I want to say it was the four month one or something. Um, but we, neither one of us, uh, you know, improved at that point. Yeah. Improved. We didn't improve. And so the doctor had said to my mom, you know, we have no, we don't know how long these kids have been sick, but certainly your son's symptoms for, you know, have been there a long time. So the chances of the antibiotics working are slim because we know, you know, after a certain amount of time in the body, um, it's hard to, to treat with antibiotics. So she, we did it anyway, and neither of us improved. So she basically, you know, said, good luck, lady, like you're on your own. That's kind of the extent of what I could do for you. So um, this was, you know, in the mid 90s, so um, mid to late 90s. So we um, began this integrative health path, which 
my mom had had some health issues herself following my older brother's pregnancy. This was, you know, in the early 80s. And so she had grown up, you know, a Navy brat on white bread and American cheese and all of that. But something about uh, being in New York City, where you know, a lot of access to practitioners and just trying to think a little bit differently. And she was such a ferocious researcher that she sort of started on the integrative health path, you know, in the early 80s. And so uh, despite my parents being like super conservative, not hippie at all. So it's really funny because people always say my house is like, we eat like the most like liberal crunchy granolas and yet like that is just totally not the case for my parents. Um, so uh, we we did lots of things. I mean, I remember, you know, again, this is over 20 years ago, but I'm being dragged around to, uh, you know, my, chiropractor, you know, with like sort of applied kinesiology, kind of muscle testing stuff. Um, we w- went to a Chinese herbalist out in Flushing, Queens, um, and drank these very intense Chinese That's teas. a polite way of putting it, uh, intense. You know, that stuff tastes terrible. Yeah, yeah. They were so disgusting, you know, taste terrible. And like they made the whole house smell like it. So, you know, nobody ever wanted to come play at our house because it was just so gross. Um, and also took, you know, tons of supplements and we avoided dairy and gluten. At that time, we just called it wheat, not gluten. Um, what else did we do? I mean, we obviously ate a ton of vegetables and, uh, you know, anyway, we were just, it was doing a lot of different things. Some of the more experimental things that we did uh, after we were not better, probably into about a year, year and a half that we were not better. My mom started to look into other things and we went to this um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy center in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and uh, stayed, I think, in kind of like a Motel 6 when we were there, the three of us. It was brutal. Um, you know, I'm like 12. I want to go out and like hang with my friends. And I'm in this hotel room with my mom and brother for the summer. Um, and every day, it's kind of like a canning bed. You go in and sit in it uh, for a couple of hours and uh, that's it. And then you just go back day after day. And then the following summer, um, which was sort of when it, when it began to be over. So I, I want to say this was the most impactful, but I really don't know. You know, we were doing so many therapies at once. That's hard to say, but we did um, something called bovine colostrum therapy. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it was really bizarre situation because it's still, and at that time it was to in orphan drug phase. So technically that means it's really illegal, you know, to be practicing it. So we had this sort of like under the radar dairy farmer and, you know, taking like our blood like on the farm and my mom's doing it in the car and it's burning all over the window. It was just like the most crazy situation, but uh, it was in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota. And uh, we went there and we, again, lived in a Motel 6 for a couple of weeks. And, you know, they would inject this blood into the cab, my blood rather. And then I would drink the colostrum or, you know, switch it around and, and they made tons of it. And we, we, you know, freezer packed it back home to New York. And I had to carry around like a little, like, a I guess sort of like a freezer, freezer bag um, everywhere with me I, when I was in, you know, I don't know, seventh grade. Um, with this colostrum at school and it was just all my friends thought it was just the weirdest thing on earth. Um, but anyway, throughout all of, yeah, it was 
looking back, it's sort of funny, but at that point, it really wasn't. Um, yeah, traumatic. Yeah, yeah, it's no fun being sick at that age. Yeah. No, and also just because it just already, my mom seemed, you know, eccentric with all these different kinds of medicine and like our diet was so different from everybody else. And then with, you know, being sick as well, and then all these things that we were doing, it was just like insult upon injury. But the great part is that after about two years of different treatments, I was, you know, my Lyme was testing inactive. And so I I don't have, I haven't had Lyme, you know, officially, I'm sure that it's, you know, the biomarkers still show up, and then you do the secondary test, and it's not active or whatever. Um, But I've been, you know, a functioning healthy kid since I was uh, you know, 13. So that's my Lyme experience. My brother took longer because he, they think that he was, you know, sick for maybe seven years before he was actually diagnosed. Um, and from when he was a really little kid, like two, like one or two. So that's, you know, when it gets into the brain at that age, it's just so catastrophic. So he took longer to heal. And I think also because he, had taken more antibiotics or um, at a younger age, but he just had a lot of sort of gut trouble from then on um, and just a weakened immune system in general. Um, But anyway, so he, I think he was finally all better by the time he was about maybe 16. Um, So it was like seven years for him and only about two for me, but he doesn't have Lyme anymore. So that he's, you know, turned into an amazing tennis player and pianist. And so, you know, I, I think none of that would have been possible had he still been, you know, in as much pain as he was with all the joint stuff and um, ended up, you know, going to Hopkins too. It was a little bit harder for him because he, you know, had to be taken out of school when he was sick. Uh, so he didn't have uh, quite a, a normal education the way that my older brother and I did, but he still made it through and, you know, brilliant web designer and everything else. So I feel like we're both very lucky in our Lyme battles. I know most people do not have that story. Most Lyme patients have like an endless sort of slightly improving, slightly, you know, more sick kind of uh, up and down journey. And it's really, really painful. You know, I've interviewed many, many people and, I would say there's a broad spread. There there are many people like you who were quite sick. And, you know, you kind of say, well, I wasn't as bad as my brother, but your symptoms were just different. I mean, if you can't, if your memory is that bad and if you're got chronic fatigue that bad, that's, that's pretty rough. You know, it's, it's not screaming in the night pain. So I can see where you can compare it and say, oh, it's, it's not nearly as bad as my brother. But you, ha- you did not have an easy go. And you were treating it for, was what, like four years before you kind of came out of that? So that's, you know, that's a path. And there, there are a lot of people who get to a functional state. And I'm not, I don't mean functional as in uh, limping through the day, but functional as in, they consider themselves Lyme free, you know, whether or not their bacteria is still in there or not, who knows, right? But their body's found a, a peace with the bacteria and they're able to, to live a life. Now, did have you had any uh, flare-ups or any relapses since that you would say, eh, maybe that's Lyme nipping at my heels? Um, I, I don't think so. I have had a low thyroid, which I actually think I got you know, in re- utero from my mother, because my brothers have it as well. 
Um, and actually my father does too. And I, it, it's more common these days, but it's more common in women. So the fact that my brothers have it too, makes me think that it's genetic. Um, it was, you know, it's something yeah. to do with my mom's health. Yeah. That being said, you can absolutely reverse hypothyroidism and I'm very committed to trying to do that. Um, but it has been something that, you know, I kind of just existed with for a long time. And so that makes me a little bit more fatigued than your average person. Um, but I wouldn't say that my fatigue or certainly my memory, you know, took any sort of like drastic decline that would make me think like, oh, this is a Lyme flare-up. It was more just like, you know, ever since the Lyme experience and sort of having the hypothyroid situation, like I've never been a great morning person, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, you know, once I'm up, it's okay. And I've, I've never taken a nap in the middle of the day, really. You know? So I, I still say that I'm, you know, a lot better than others as far as like my level of energy. I don't think it's like, optimized because you know the, the thyroid but long-winded way of saying i do not believe that i've had a flare-up since i was 13 though fatigue has kind of always been part of my life a little bit at least morning fatigue yeah and many people who have had lyme and many people who haven't had lyme struggle with hormonal balance afterwards and you know clearly with the amenorrhea and then with the with the thyroid thing you know there's something in that axis that level of health that uh that you're trying to optimize and speaking of optimizing and what's your what what's your daily routine like because you you healed the amenorrhea with diet have you had to continue that diet or was that just a intervention diet and what what do you do these days to keep yourself healthy and going because you have quite a bit on your plate. Yeah, um, that's a great question. So the diet that I did when I was in college dealing with the amenorrhea was very strict. And, you know, it's kind of amazing. I have, when something works for you, it's very hard to give it up, right? So I was so impressed by how I had gotten better through this protocol that I kind of kept that diet going a really long time. And one of the things that most bizarre about it. Some of the stuff is very obvious, you know, like I wasn't eating gluten and sugar and, you know, trying to reduce processed foods and anything artificial. Um, and I think that was mostly it. But the other thing that was really interesting about it was she believed in reducing your exposure to things that would feed a bacteria or a virus or whatever it might be in your gut that was wreaking havoc on your hormones. So I, I was only eating raw food that I was washing myself with like a special citricidal vegetable wash, which is basically just grapefruit seed extract. Um, and so it was really, really weird to be, you know, a college age girl who thought, oh my God, I'm definitely going to get fat if I don't eat salad all the time. Right. Everyone mm -hmm. thinks like, oh, I want something healthy. I'm going to get a salad. And all of that had to be turned on its head. And I really couldn't eat anything out that wasn't cooked. And in America, especially like lunchtime, it's a sandwich or a salad, right? So I couldn't yep. eat the salad and I couldn't eat the wheat. So I was really stuck a lot of times. Um, and it would end up, you know, eating like French fries every now and then because that was, you know, easy. I couldn't really have that either, but it was sort of like the lesser of all the evils. So um, that and also making sure that I only drank, you know, mineral or uh, filtered water for the same reasons. And so it was very weird for a lot of people around me that always like, what you're into wellness and you don't eat fresh fruits and vegetables, like at a restaurant, you're not going to get, you know, the berry plate and all this stuff. And I said, you know, no. And so it also made me prepare a lot more of my food at home because I knew that if I wanted to get these nutrients and the only way to do that was to eat, 
you know, my own breakfast and lunch and hopefully dinner too. So that became something that I really tried to stick to um, over the last decade to try to really uh, prepare my own foods and bring them with me or eat at home if I can. And so today I'm not as strict, you know, I still try not to eat out at restaurants, you know, salads or raw fruit or vegetables. I really try to eat those at home. Um, but do I have wheat every now and then, or, you know, dessert here and there? Like, yes, I'm not in a, in a, in a disease healing protocol, um, the way that, you know, I'm not being as strict as I would be if I was really trying to kick something. Um, and actually, interestingly enough, I have felt some thyroid issues kind of exacerbate from the stress of being, you know, a sole founder and a entrepreneur now. And so I've had to kind of check my diet again. And, you know, this is just a great example of health is never done. You know, like I saying that, you know, if you had Lyme and then you kind of kicked it and like, well, now I'm great. Like, it's just that there's just no way that the human body stays in a perfect state if you don't stay in a perfect state with your habits. So, um, you know, I've noticed that I need to kind of get back in a bit more strict um, way with my diet. And it was only in the last couple of you know months that I realized this. So it's funny timing that you're asking me that now. Um, but I would say, you know, I try to, for, you know, in the morning, I take, um, I take a probiotic with, you know, room temperature, uh, lemon water. And um, then I try to make myself, you know, a really nutrient packed smoothie um, with like 15 different ingredients if I can. Um, and, or I'll do a, you know, some pasture raised organic eggs with like half an avocado and try to get some green vegetables in there too, if I can, or kimchi or something like that, um, which is like a, you know, good food for the gut and, uh, do some kind of a salad or cooked vegetables with, you know, sometimes beans or, you know, a wild salmon or organic chicken or something for, for lunch. I do eat a little bit of red meat these days, but not that much. Um, and try to do a similar type meal for, for dinner, um, as lunch. And, uh, I don't really snack much, but if I do, it's usually on nuts, um, or a piece of dark chocolate. I try to not have much sugar these days either, um, except for, you know, 80% dark chocolate. And I'm not the best exerciser. I think this comes with my energy levels you know, always kind of being a little bit lower um, because of my hypothyroidism than I would want them, but I know how important it is. So I get myself to, you know, at least a spin class a week and a Pilates class a week and a few things like that. Um, But I also just, I live in New York City, so I walk everywhere. I try to get to 10,000 steps every day in the winter. Sometimes it can end up being more like, you know, six or 7,000, but I really try. Yeah, that's awesome. The walking, I live out on a farm. And unfortunately, really to get anywhere, we have to get in the car. And it's the one thing I really miss. I grew up in DC and man, I just miss walking, you know, just to go somewhere. Getting on a treadmill just leaves me cold. So I want to, I want to go somewhere when I walk. So I'm envious of you being in the city and just being able to put on your shoes and have to walk to go somewhere. Yeah, I feel extremely lucky. And I know that most people are in your situation in America versus mine. Um, the you know need to get in a car is pervasive even in most cities besides let's say New York Chicago and maybe San Francisco um, and DC too but uh, I I I find that 
the walking is not just for the actual exercise, but also the being outside mm-hmm. and getting, you know, the best form of vitamin D that you can is just some exposure to sunlight. Um, if, or at least, you know, I try to get a half an hour a day. And so I'll like today I have to go to an appointment, uh, six o'clock and I'm just like shutting down for the day at five thirty so that I can walk the 30 minutes to get there instead of taking the subway or, you know, a cab. So, I try to do that and just kind of get that in so that any day and I'm always getting um, out time outside and, you know, moving because it's clear that not a sedentary lifestyle and not moving around is one of the biggest issues with our (laughs) health issues today. Yeah, it's Um, massive. Both our mental health issues and our physical health issues. And I know I feel different when I'm stationary all day. It's a it's dramatic difference in my brain and I can't quite explain it, but I just want to make sure that I, you know, give my body what it needs. Well, you know, we're talking about gut for a second and they're they're doing some interesting studies and exercise influences the gut. So it's it's this dynamic, you know, we think of it, oh, your gut biome and you've got, we've got DNA tested my gut biome. And so therefore we've got this bacteria in there, but it changes hour to hour and day to day. The ratios, not necessarily the, the actual bugs that are in there, but the ratios will change radically based on what you're eating and what you're doing. So it's this dynamic, amazing supercomputer, you know, between your mouth and the other end. It's It's incredible. Yeah, I I am such. When I started Wellbe, I did not realize that it was going to be so much about gut health and the importance of your gut and every single process in the body. And it has really become, you know, really the foundation of what we talk about as far as research and interviews and stories that we tell. And um, it's so. And I think that's also timing, right? We didn't really get all the findings from the microbiome project until a few years ago. Um, and we still don't know really anything, exciting. right? And, and and overall, we still know nothing. Yeah. But it, it's exciting in that so many different. Yeah, it's getting its due, right? It's finally people are saying, okay, maybe there is something going on here. And again, talk about the you know the the fringe when when you got started when you were sick, there were only a handful of people talking about probiotics and gut health in that way. And now now it's mainstream science. You know, we're, we're still on the exploratory right. phase of things, but it's mainstream. It's so, it's so wild. When I was younger, we had to take, um, my mom had us take, uh, was acidophilus <laughs> and, uh, I refrigerated uh, probably, right? You know, yeah. Exactly. Of course. And, you know, she was, I don't know how I'm not going to get into all the like vaccine stuff, but she was very adamant that we not be vaccinated for things that we absolutely didn't need to be vaccinated for. And so she was, you know, I remember her arguing a lot with pediatricians and things like that. And I didn't really know why. And so I, I, that's kind of separate from the gut issue. But um, I remember just a couple of years ago when I started, you know, realizing I started taking this probiotic, I don't know, it was maybe five years ago, that acidophilus is just a probiotic. I thought it was, you know, I didn't know what that was when we were kids. You just, mom says, take this, you take it. And I was like, wow, she was so ahead of her time. I mean, it was before the microbiome project, but she was just an avid researcher and she just really you know, we weren't allowed to have uh, milk that was, if, if at all, it had to be sheep or goat. And my friends would say, why are you, you know, and it would be about gut strengthening opponent, you know, um, characteristics of that versus having added hormones and all this stuff. It's just fascinating how some of this stuff has been around a really long time. And yet now all of a sudden gut health is like front page news. 
and everyone's connecting it to all these different kinds of illnesses they never thought were related, like brain issues as well as things that are more related to the GI tract and things like asthma. And it's just the list is just growing and growing and growing. And it's so exciting and so cool. And like you said, we're going to learn so much more. But I think it's just, it's really encouraging because there's something that you can do about your gut, right? There's not that much that you can do about your genetics. And so I love this turning and conversation from a fixed mindset to really a growth mindset as far as what you can prevent and reverse in this chronic illness, you know, fight. Yeah, that's very well said. Now, you you mentioned you went to Hopkins, then you went on and this is super impressive. You got an MBA from the Kellogg School. And that's like crazy. So you're on this pathway to become like a partner in a major consulting firm. And then you do a 180. <laughs> so what what inspired you to found WellBe? Yeah. So um, I don't think I was ever going to be a partner in a consulting firm because actually my mom had been a management consultant and in, I think, the first class of women at Columbia Business School. And uh, I should add that she died. Um, she actually is the main reason that I founded Weldy. And so uh, this was just before I actually went to Kellogg. And um, I guess I'll back up a little bit and say that when I, I got my, you know, my amenorrhea was taken care of. I was all set when I was about 21. And then a few months later, um, my mother had this massive manic episode and was, you know, running through the streets in the middle of the night of New York, trying to escape me and my two brothers thought we were, you know, like totally delusional, paranoid. Um, and we ended up having to, you know, kind of put her in a human straitjacket, and my brother did, and put her in the back of a cop car and send her to some, you know, city jail or facility um, in the middle of the night. I've, and, I've had to do that with my mom, so my sympathies. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was really terrifying because we had no exposure to the mental health care system before that night. And it's really significantly worse than, than the conventional healthcare system or the normal healthcare system. So it just started this nightmare of, you know, crazy amounts of antipsychotics and drugs. And she was drooling and shaking and just a total zombie, you know, and the health that we, you know, everything that we understood about how to approach health problems, we couldn't really use because once you're in like the claws of the mental healthcare system and the insurance companies, and you're on these drugs and and she did try to go off the drugs a few times and did have some, you know, relapse mania. So it was also scary for us to think of her going off of those. And yet we knew that the drugs weren't addressing the root cause of why these issues had come about. And she herself, I mentioned, had a lot of gut problems and a lot of emotional trauma from her childhood. And she had uh, gone through a divorce with my dad. So there was stuff that was there too. And um, she just, she had Epstein-Barr virus and chronic fatigue and these different things. And nobody lifted the hood up to see what might be going on and try to help some of the issues in her brain by addressing some of them in her gut first and dealing with any kind of, you know, letting go of emotional stuff too, but none of that. It was just drugs, 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 and then other drugs for the side effects because the side effects of antipsychotics are so intense. So long story short, when I was 25, she took her life. And um, it was just two weeks before my before my applications for business school were due. And I'd been applying not because I really wanted to, you know, be a corporate executive or something, but because I 
thought that I could, I, I wanted to do something more meaningful than I worked in marketing at IBM and I didn't feel like that was really my calling. And I wouldn't feel the work was like as purposeful as I could be. Um, and I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do, but I thought, okay, I'll, I'm sort of doing business now. I'll, I'll figure it out there. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm completely in shock and horror two weeks before trying to put the pieces together and deal with her death and didn't think that I'd be able to finish the applications. There was, you know, I just didn't think it was possible, but my friends were incredible, kind of banded together and got a few of these things out the door because I'd already done most of the work. And I said, if I get in anywhere, I'm going to go and I'm going to dedicate, I'm going to change career paths and I'm going to work on fixing the healthcare system, you know, from here on out so that it's integrative medicine, wellness, a holistic, you know, alternative, like that will be the standard of care in America when I'm done, even if it's when I'm 90. <laughs> and uh, that's, you know, so that's what I did. So when I, I got into Kellogg's, I moved to Chicago just six months or so after she died. And I didn't really know anybody. It was pretty intense, actually. Um, but I, you know, loved it. And as I was there, I was trying to meet everybody that I could I was interested in this integrative medicine world and functional medicine, and there was pretty much nobody. Um, and the only people who were interested in any kind of health or health startup or innovation um, were interested in digital health. So it's really just, you know, using you know, technology and the current healthcare system. And so I actually started a version of what's now WellBe, which um, in a slightly different form, more as a patient community in a class paired with um, programmers from the engineering school and another business school student called Welby. And, that's, you know, I have the, all the URLs and the, the social channels and um, Get Welby is the name, actually, um, since 2012, because I was doing it for this class, which is sort of funny, um, and decided after school was over that, you know, we were all in different directions. And this wasn't exactly the form that I wanted to do this in. And I wasn't really at a stage in my life where I felt like I could give it my blood, sweat and tears, which is now exactly what you have to do since I'm going through it. I know that. Um, and I ended up working for a healthcare technology company uh, for three years. So I worked with hospitals, ironically, on chronic disease management programs. And so as I was doing that, I was pretty miserable because I could, you know, I knew what was wrong and I wasn't really getting to work on the, pro the problem, but it was also very insightful. And I think now I'm also a board certified patient advocate. And had I not spent so much time in the healthcare system, I don't think I would have been able to get that certification because I know all this random stuff about, you know, Medicare, Medicaid billing and, you know, like these different, uh, programs through CMS for reducing admissions and, you know, managing chronic diseases and all this stuff. So um, I finally decided after my wedding, because I was like, okay, one thing at a time that I would uh, start trying to build what is now Wellbe. And it's a media lifestyle brand and also working on developing a lot of educational resources. But um, I worked on it for about six months while I was still at my job and then finally took a huge leap and quit my job, um, which they were all, you know, shocked about um, to start it. It was exactly two years ago next week um, and just started telling stories of health recovery from really intense chronic illnesses through integrative medicine and covering a lot of research and uh, interviewing a lot of experts that sit between conventional healthcare and wellness. Um, 
and uh, having different panels and events, uh, mostly in New York, but in a couple of other places now as well. And launched the website, you know, weekly newsletter, all of our social media handles um, in July of 2017. So it's been a little over a year and a half and then also launched the Wellbe podcast. So I have that as well um, about seven or eight months ago. So that's what it is. And basically it was all from, you know, my own experiences that inspired me to try to create something that would bridge this large gap that I felt that I still feel exists between this conventional system, which we know has a lot of issues, but we all have to interact with at some point and in some way with this burgeoning and pretty exciting wellness movement that we're seeing um, come about. And, you know, they're very far apart and I don't think we'll ever really tackle the disease and cost problems of our day in the conventional system if we don't bring the wellness system into it. Um, and I'm not talking about just, you know, juicing and leggings and things like that. I think that stuff will, you know, just kind of the, the tip of the iceberg. But I really want to help people to prevent chronic health issues from happening at all. And then when they have them, see that they can really reverse them naturally and uh, find what they need to support that, whether it's the right brands for food and, you know, natural medicines, et cetera, and also doctors and practitioners who are going to be open-minded um, and think more holistically and how they treat the body. Um, and then also, you know, just become extremely informed um, about, you know, what the latest is as far as research in this space and um, how to, how to live and uh, everything that we know about, you know, avoiding these, these chronic illnesses, et cetera. So that's what Wellbe is. And as I said before, it's called Get Wellbe officially. And the website is getwellbe.com, right? Yep. Um, and we're very active on um, Instagram. I don't know if anybody out there is a big Instagrammer, but that is really where we've seen the wellness and functional and integrative medicine conversation flourishing. And that was actually my biggest uh, encouragement when I decided to quit my job was I saw all these people talking about these things that I thought nobody talked about that, you know, I grew up with um, on Instagram and I thought, wow, there's finally a place for this kind of a conversation around, you know, gut health and healing root causes and autoimmunity and Lyme and all this stuff. So I, um, and, you know, post every day I'm active on, so it's get well, is all of our different social handles on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Um, yeah. Adrian, thank you so much. You've been very, very generous with your time and knowledge and sharing and just opening your heart and sharing your story. And I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Is there anything that is left unsaid that needs to be said? No, I mean, I, since your focus is on Lyme, I would say that, you know, it's very complicated disease and I don't want anybody to think that, um, I don't believe in, you know, using, oh, you know, antibiotics when needed and things like that. It was more that my experience that didn't quite work for me. And from what I've seen with a lot of other Lyme patients that I know, the persistent Lyme is really the, the tricky one that doesn't quite always work with um, conventional treatments at the moment. Um, but I would encourage anybody listening that has Lyme to make sure that they voice that they, you know, want to fully heal and to use you know, the full strength of their immune system to get there and to use all the different tools that they, that, you know, are out there, whether or not they're conventional or integrative or, you know, really woo-woo or whatever it might be, 
to get your immune system to a place where um, it can really, you know, attack the Lyme and put it into an inactive um, mode. So I hope that's helpful. I, I'm always kind of saddened to think of where a lot of people are looking for things and not getting other solutions in the battle for Lyme. But I think you really have to become your own patient advocate and kind of put yourself in the you know CEO role of your own health and say that you need a care team and you need different kinds of therapies and you don't care which side of the aisle they fall under if they're going to get you you know where you need to be. So I think just making sure that you have open-minded people and really being empowered as a patient will hopefully finally get that um, you know result, which is what we all want, which is to, to fully heal. Awesome. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you so much again for having me. Have a wonderful day. This was such an interesting interview. And you know, the history nerd in me was tickled pink when she started talking about the dangers of masking symptoms and how it doesn't allow you to find the root cause of problems, because that was actually something that Gandhi said. I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, he, I mean, he was talking about it in terms of taking an aspirin for your headache or taking uh, whatever the 1800s equivalent of Pepto-Bismol. Oh, sorry, 1950s equivalent of Pepto-Bismol was. But yeah, that was something that he would say. It's tempting to mask symptoms. And when the symptoms are horrible, you have to quiet them down. It's a big mistake to confuse masking symptoms with taking care of the problem. Yeah. And I think that's that's a very, very important point. And one of the things we know that happens in the middle of your Lyme journey, when you are treating the Lyme disease and you finally get ahead of it and in control of the infections inside you, oftentimes people are still sick afterwards, right? And I think the mistake that's made sometimes is to assume that the infection is still running the show. And we've had quite a few interviews over the past couple months that indicate that, well, that's not always the case. It can be. So maybe it's really important to retest and find out if those infections are active and however you determine that in the first place. But then to consider alternatives, that maybe there's something else that's been activated by the Lyme. So the Lyme caused it, triggered it, but it's something entirely different now that must be addressed. So that's such an important point. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. And if you really like what we're doing, leave us a review on your podcast app. It helps us reach more people like you. And if you really, really like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, share this podcast with a friend. You just might save their life. Do you have feedback, suggestions for guests, really anything? Send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know only ninjas are allowed into the beyond section of Bed, Bath, and Beyond? (laughs) 
Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.